0: is the rebel author podcast where we talk about books business and occasionally bad words Hello Rebels and welcome to episode 204 of the Rebel Author podcast. Today I'm talking to Nova McBee all about her fan-funded book to movie translation. It's a really interesting conversation so um, I look forward to sharing that shortly. But first to last week's question which was tell me the last thing you did for pure joy. So Kim Rosario author on Instagram said go thrift shopping for books, love that. Always going to love a bit of book shopping. Uh, author Lena M Johnson said gonna cheat and put two. I dressed up to attend the local renaissance fair, got my hair braided and watched the performers with a cold drink in the hot sun. That sounds glorious. The other thing I did was sit down with my dip pen and some ink so I could journal for a while. I love the tactility of a pen and paper and uh, uh it's even better with dip pens or fountain pens highly recommend especially if you want to feel like (laughs) if you want to feel like a repressed victorian letting off some steam i love that okay uh so this week i have been thinking a lot about uh 20 books vegas the schedule is out i'm teaching two classes as well as doing the uh keynote so i'm teaching class on unlikable characters and I'm teaching another class on the uh, called prose in the market, which looks at the craft side of writing to market. So uh, my question is conference-themed, and it is, what's the best writing conference or event you've been to? And I suppose I'm asking because I would love to know uh, if you're going to Vegas. I know some of you have emailed and told me, but I would love to hear if any others of you, the close that we're getting, obviously more people are buying tickets, so I would love to hear uh, if you're going. And I am sure I'm going to organize an an evening, an hour, whatever, uh, where uh, I can meet some of the rebels. So, the book recommendation of the week this week is Smart Brevity by Jim der Hey. And for those of you who are on the uh, Patreon, I'm pretty sure you have heard me and Rachel talking about Smart Brevity. It's a great little book. All about how to be more concise with your writing and uh, more concise in order to help you be more marketable or like I guess clickbaity or but but more be more succinct in your writing and your content so that you can convey your point with clarity. So I thought it was great and it's a very quick read, understandably as well. In personal news and updates, so last week. I was just about starting to hand over all of the freelance stuff. Uh, As I've mentioned before, I have reduced my freelance from about 30 to 60 hours a month down to like 20 hours a quarter, Uh, so only like an afternoon... or or a day, a month really. So all of my time suddenly became my own and I had not anticipated the head fuckery that would ensue. And there was some head fuckery, I can assure you. So last week I only managed about 15,000 words. And uh, that is, uh, I know that's lots for some people, but that's quite low for me when I'm drafting. Usually I'm up between about twenty to 30,000 words. And a lot of that was down to the fact that I lost all of my structure. When I was doing freelance, I had loads of like external pressure because I had deadlines that I had to meet for other people, which meant when it came to my writing sessions, I was highly focused because I knew I only had a certain amount of time because I had to deliver other stuff for other people that I was being paid for, so that really helped to precision focus my focus <laughs> uh, and obviously, as I've started to hand stuff over, all of my I, I suddenly had this huge vastness of time, and it felt like there was a hole missing and something you know huge missing from from my day to day, and of course there was it was freelance. And so that has been like a huge mental readjustment. And it's taken me at least a week, I would say to like work out who I am, (laughs) remember my name, figure out what I was supposed to be doing. And I've had to have quite a few different chats and stuff. And one of the things that I am doing is trying to be more disciplined about organizing writing sprints. Um, I think that I'm also going to have to look at the structure of my week. Uh, this week, for, I mean, I haven't been sleeping so well this, the last few days, so I think that has kind of impacted it. Usually, I have my meetings and do all my podcasting stuff on a Thursday, but today is Wednesday, the sixteenth of August, because I wrote five thousand words Monday, I wrote five thousand words Tuesday, and I woke up this morning and I was fucked. Some of that was to do with like sleep and the fact that I'm exercising again, uh, but still, I'm not. I'm not sure that. If I am doing all of my own stuff all day, every day, whether or not that I will be able to keep having my meetings on Thursday, I think I will. But uh, it might mean that I have to do stuff on Wednesdays instead. So uh, yeah, it's a big learning curve. It really does feel like uh, how I was when I left my day job all over again. So I'm expecting, I guess, like six months of wobbling <laughs> as I as I try and work out what this new life looks like. Uh, I'm trying to be really kind and nice to myself. I know it's shocking. I'm, I'm surprised as well. And like yesterday, I uh, had ground to a halt because I couldn't see the next scene. And so I, I, I literally can't believe I'm saying this, but I took a picture of my post-it note outline and printed it and then I left the house. I mean, It's just shocking, really, a shocking revelation. But I did, I left the house and I went for a walk and I sat on a hill and lo and fucking behold, giving myself that time to just think in silence without my phone produced, guess what? Lots of notes about the next scene. It really does annoy the fuck out of me that the basic things work. Like giving yourself time to think. It's almost like as a creative, we need to think. Who fucking knew? I just, honestly, I I drive myself bananas most of the time because I just fight to myself doing the fucking logical things that I know I should be doing, like the fact that I need to think about the next scene. You can't just pull it out your ass, Sasha. Um... Anyway, I mean I mean I'm sure you know Stephen King pulls shit out of his ass all the time, but where is this conversation going? Oh my god, let me get back on track. Anyway, so the point is it's been a bit of a roller coaster this last week, and I feel like I'm in a transition. I feel like my brain is opening up to new ideas, new things that I want to do, to shape, to change. Um, I've been working on courses. Finally, I'm so fucking excited to share some of these courses with you. Um, and uh, yeah, so I've been working on that. I've been doing words. It is unbelievable how quickly I was able to refill my time. <laughs> like, honestly, I thought there might be a couple of days there where, uh, you know, I wasn't busy. No, no, <laughs> this bitch knows how to fill her time. So yeah, I have, but what's exciting is that I'm getting the opportunity to pull projects in, that I have been putting off for a long time. So there's lots of like more business infrastructure things that I'm excited to do. I have also commissioned all three covers for my next uh, fiction series, which I'm super excited about. Uh, the first drafts came in and they were epic. Uh, I just wish I could show you. <laughs> I don't know why I do this to myself. I torture myself by getting these things early and then I have to fucking sit on them for like 10,000 years. Oh, my activator says hi, by the way. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, I have got those and I'm sort of going back and forth trying to pin down and and get those done. And yeah, like just it's soldiering on time. So I'm working on book three. I'm trying to make a decision and pin down what nonfiction book I'm going to write because I've got about 14 ideas. I can't decide what I want to do. Uh, So I'm going to have some chats with friends about that. And I think that's it. So I'm going to move right on to Rebel of the Week. And this week, that is Beth Biss. Beth says, I'm writing to tell you about my great aunt, Dr. Catherine Oller. I doubt she would have wanted to be called a rebel, but she definitely was. She was born in 1916, grew up during the Depression, and went to college where she was proposed to. But when said young man talked uh, talked to her about the things she would have to do to help his career, uh oh, and that she could n- not have a career, she gave the ring back. <laughs> what a legend, unheard of! Uh, in the 30s, she went on to get two master's degrees and a PhD. Holy shit! She only ever interviewed for one job and didn't even get that job. She got hired for her reputation to get things done over and over again. She was only five feet tall, but she drove a mobile library bus for the county. She had to schedule all her stops at schools and and towns herself, and she she had to learn how to put chains on the bus to drive in snow and ice in the winter. She went on to be the Associate Dean at Drexel University in the Library Science Department. It's now called Information Technologies. She worked there until her retirement. She was greatly feared by both faculty and students. If Catherine wanted it done, by God, you found a way to do it. When she retired, she uh, kept up a correspondence with over 80 former students and faculty. Wow. She started each morning at six with a cup of coffee and banged away at her typewriter for over an hour to write her letters. She died in 2015 and I do miss her so. Oh my goodness. I absolutely love that story. What an incredible woman she was. I am... I love when like these women live these lives in societies that absolutely would have been against them I just think it's so inspirational so thank you so much for sending in that story if you would like to be a rebel of the week please do send in your story it can be any kind of rebellion something big something small or something in between you can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com and I know I have insisted the last couple of weeks we have had a couple in we haven't had huge amounts in so we are still low so please do send in those stories no new patrons this week but a big thank you to all of my existing patrons i really do appreciate the support if you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as a bunch of bonus content then you can from as little as two dollars a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black This episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. This in mind, Kobo has developed a way for authors to reach audiobook listeners with direct audiobook upload. You can now publish an audiobook right in your Kobo Writing Life account as easily as you can publish an e-book. You can create a customisable table of content, set the price in 16 different currencies and even set up a pre-order for your audiobook with no date limitations. There's no exclusivity and you will always have control of your pricing. And once your audiobook is published, there are lots of promotional opportunities. Kobo even have customisable social assets that you can download to share on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, making it even easier for you to reach this growing market. If you're a KWL author and don't yet have access to the audiobooks tab or the promotional mailing list, email the team at writinglife@kobo.com at and they'll hook you up. Don't forget, you can purchase audiobooks on Kobo.com and they will download directly to your free Kobo app or e-reader. If you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and find them on social. Create your free account today at Kobo.com Forward slash writing life. Okay, that is it from me this week. Let's get on with the interview. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Nova McBee. Nova is an avid traveller and culture nerd who has lived and worked in Europe, the Middle East and Asia for half her life. She speaks multiple languages, including Mandarin, and lived in China for more than a decade. She thrives on complex plots, adventure, making cross-cultural connections, and coffee. She currently resides in the beautiful Pacific Northwest with her husband and three children. Hello and welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for joining me. Tell me about your time in China. What was that like? Where did you stay, China China, and Japan? Japan is number one on my bucket list, but I am desperate to go to China as well. It's been high, high, high on my list for a really long time.
1: Wow, that's awesome. I love hearing that. And that's actually what I hope people will want to do after they read my book. I hope they'll want (laughs) to visit China and all the countries I write about. Um, I was based in a city called Chengdu, which is in the middle of China, uh, close to Tibet, like on the border of like where the Tibetan lines start going. And it is known for pandas and spicy hot pot and uh, bamboo. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. I loved every uh, day that I lived there. And I thought I would be there for one year. And uh, that just ended up getting longer and longer and longer. What What took you there? What took me there? Um, I had friends that invited me over and... I actually didn't originally want to go to China. I was planning on going to the Middle East and I am a praying woman and I, I prayed and I felt like I was supposed to go. And I was shocked because I had never thought about Asia and it turned out to be the best thing of my life. I actually got a job teaching at a university, which was an incredible opportunity. And like I said, I didn't realize I'd fall in love with Chinese language, which is I'm a linguist. I I've studied eight languages. And when I looked at Chinese or Japanese, I was like, I'm never going to study those. And th- th- those little words like never <laughs> oh, just come back and bite ya because I ended up like, whoa, this is the most complex, beautiful, amazing, deep language I've ever studied in my life. And I got obsessed and I was like, oh, I'll just stay one more year just to study the language because I was like, oh, I'm just going to teach at this university and then I'll go back because I'd already lived abroad for four years. And so I already loved living abroad, teaching. I worked at rugby pubs. I've worked at like all kinds of crazy places. I was like, why not work at a university um, and then I wanted to study the language for one year, which turned into three years, which then turned into like all these other opportunities. Once you live in Asia, there's just so many opportunities. So I just fell in love and decided to stay. I also what? met my husband there. So. Ah, ah, okay. What are the languages that you can speak? So I... Um, I come from a multicultural home. My mother is a dual citizen of uh, of Finland. And so my mom spoke to me in Finnish growing up, but I was also obsessed with languages growing up. I studied French from a very young age. And then when I actually lived in Finland as a teenager, I ended up with a gang of Italians. and, (laughs) And I was the only American running with that crew. And it was so fun after like, six months of being the only American in a little Italian gang you're like oh crap I can understand what they're saying because I had all this French background with grammar and so I was like asking them questions along the way but when you're in the when you're the only American in a group and people are like andiamo and then everybody gets up to leave you're like oh andiamo must mean let's go and then you you know like your brain see i am a puzzle person which i didn't realize back then but i know now i'm like i love puzzles and languages are puzzles and so i'd be like i knew we were going to this restaurant on thursday and everybody kept saying jobby jobby you know and the, like the name of the restaurant so i'm like oh I, it must be thursday you know it's like the puzzles so um after a year i was like oh my gosh i can understand italian And so I learned Italian like a little kid. I eventually moved to Italy and just learned to speak it as well. And um, so yeah, Italian and French and Chinese are my best languages that I can have deeper relationships in. I can read books in those languages, listen to music in those languages, movies in those languages. I've also lived in Denmark, studied Danish for two years. Swedish, I studied Swedish, Finnish. I've studied Arabic and Uyghur. I don't know if you know what Uyghur is. Uyghur is a Turkic language that they speak in Central Asia. It's also um, a part of China that China kind of took over. The same time they uh, kind of took over Tibet. Um, it's a Turkish. It's actually a Turkish background speaking people that resides within the Chinese borders. So.
0: Oh wow! So and obviously, Finnish must be in there as well. Like you can still. Yeah. 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 My Finnish, oh, well. you know,
1: to my mother's shame. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's, it's not very good <laughs> I can understand and so I, I'm kind of like a, a five-year-old when it comes to Finnish where I'm like give me my favorite foods you know yeah. <laughs> like just the, let's sing songs about colors and no I, I know enough Finnish to get by and I can understand it but um, I would say my other languages are better just because I've lived in those countries longer Amazing. that it, it fascinates
0: me. My um, siblings are uh, uh, they bilingual and I am not. And it always fascinates me how like they picked up their language and like their kind of language development. because there's a big age gap between us. And um, yeah, it, it's bizarre to be in a family. And my dad speaks five languages and it's oh bizarre God. to be yeah the one who can't. <laughs> it's really frustrating. Yes. Uh, so I just try to be the best I can with English. Um, (laughs) and run a podcast an international
1: podcast yeah exactly
0: and literary (laughs) okay well that was a massive tangent uh we haven't even got onto the topic of today uh today's conversation but do you want to tell everyone like a whistle stop on kind of your journey and how you got to where you are uh both with your books and the fact that you are going through film development because it's it's a wild ride
1: it is. And, you know, when I got your set of questions, I was like, that is such a philosophical question. Where did you, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, <laughs> start in birth. <laughs> you know, it's like it really looking back, you're like, it is a series of little decisions along the way. And you just see how everything really does fold into one one thing folds into another and how perfectly it can be when you make these amazing decisions. And for me, I wouldn't even have a film deal or a book deal if I had not said yes to China. And I I look back at that constantly um, because I was inspired there to start writing my books. And my, my first book is based in China and I actually met the producer in China that led me to the producers that now bought the rights to my book. And I look back constantly at these little small decisions that we have that that are always, always involve a risk. You know, it always takes a little bit of faith to be like, should I, or should I not do this? And that gut instinct that says, you know, you should. And And all of those led me to where I am today and i've always been a risk taker I've, I've lived abroad a lot of places as you've just heard i've done a lot of crazy things all around the world and those things really led to me led me to writing these books they're international action adventure thriller they got sci-fi elements romance elements they they have all these things it's a young adult you know becoming who they are and that that is like my life you know i started living abroad as a teen and and discovering who i am and what gifts i have and and then meeting these producers along the way and becoming a writer is that was also interesting because i i was always creative i was always told my writing was good but i never knew i could be a novelist i never even had that in my mind and i've i've often shared this at at different um conferences and stuff like growing up, when you go to a library, you don't see, uh, for me, we had no contact with authors. It's not like we we had Instagram growing up where we could just see all the authors online and like have contact with them. It was literally like a library and you don't see the authors and, you know, not like a hospital where you go in and see doctors and you're like, this is connected to the industry. It was so disconnected. So I, I literally, I was like, authors are like C.S. Lewis, they're dead and you just read their books. Like, it was like, you don't know where they come from. So I literally had no clue that I even could write books. And um, so when I was in China and it was like, I I realized, wow, I actually want to write books, like novels, fiction novels. I um, decided if I'm going to do this, I want to do it well. And it's cool that you asked that, like, how did you get here as a writer? Um, Because I do have a small press or I'm published with a small press. And, and it doesn't have national distribution like these huge big five publishing companies. But back then I was like, if I'm going to do this, I want to be a contender. Like I want to know that I'm good enough and I can contend with the best of the best, not even knowing what my path was even back then. But I was like, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it well. And it's so cool for me to look back and see the hard work that I had to put into doing that. And now I get to teach courses on that. Like I'm teaching a course next week called how to be a contender in the industry, because I've been teaching these younger novelists being like, um, how can you compete in like such a competitive industry, right? You're in publishing, you're in entertainment, but how can you contend Just like a boxer going into a ring. They're not going to go in until they're ready until they know they can compete until they know they can fight until they know they can have, they have a chance to win. And I was like, that's the same with publishing. Like you have to know if you're ready to compete and where you are And so I practiced my craft for like seven years. (laughs) I was just like, I'm just going to practice, 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 because I want to be a contender. And it's really cool, because even though I'm with a small press, and this is something that I share with young novelists, is like, now my book is winning awards, and they're competing with all these New York Times bestseller, all these huge publishers, even though I'm from a small press with basically a no name, but my book contends with the best. And that's like, I try to you know, and it has a movie deal and all these things. And because these young novels, I'm like, yeah, it actually doesn't matter where you are. It matters who you are. And if you're doing the best you can with your product, you know, and of course I'm a huge mission impossible fan and, and, um, uh, top gun fan. So I quote Maverick. I'm like, it's not the plane. It's the pilot. (laughs) It is you, it is you like, you can be a contender no matter what publishing agency you're with, you know, what, whatever. And so I would say um, a lot of risk-taking, a lot of hard work, a lot of integrity, a lot of not giving up. And um, yeah, it takes a lot to, to, to get where you are today. Like you have to face rejection and not back down. You have to keep going through years of no's. I got I don't know, five, six years of no's before I got a yes. So you you do have to stand your ground and and have perseverance. Yeah, absolutely. Is that a long answer or what? No, I, I agree. I agree with
0: everything that you're saying, though. It definitely is about resilience and keeping going and, and that grit. And uh, I'm a huge Maverick fan, so I love the quote. Um, So let's talk a little bit about the fact that you do have a film, uh deal and you have uh optioned the the book how did that come about like how how did that occur like it's unusual um you know it's all author's dream and anyone who says it isn't is lying but uh yeah how did that come about
1: so as I said right place right time in China um and met this producer I w- I was actually querying the book at the time so again like I said There's so many no's in this industry that you have to just you you eventually are like, okay, I'm going to be rejected and you got to keep moving forward. So when this publisher or sorry, when this producer said, hey, tell me about what you're working on. And I told her about calculated. I said, hey, you know, here's what it's about, you know, math prodigy wrongly taken, betrayed, you know, taken to China, got to escape captors and romance and high stakes and, you know, all this stuff, deep themes. She was like, you know what? I actually know people who are interested in that kind of thing. Do you mind if I read it? And if I like it, can I pass it on to them? And at that point I've been rejected by so many people. You're like, what do you have to lose? Nothing. And You're like, of course, go ahead, read it. You don't even think anything will come of it, you know? And so I was still querying my book and then I actually signed an agent and then we get this email from a, the producer saying, Hey, we're really interested in talking, optioning the rights. And my agent was like, what book is this? <laughs> Cause I actually signed her on a different book. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. No, I had finished querying, calculated. And I started querying a second book and my agent, now my current agent, um, she like signed me on the second book. So she's like, shoot, I better read calculated <laughs> super fast. She read it in a day and she's like, okay, now I understand why they want this book. And we began discussions. Um, and yeah, it was, it's been a journey from there. So we signed right before COVID. So you can imagine it was like, all this like oh, I'm excitement and then. COVID, <laughs> which slow slowed down a huge process of it
0: so the the film company that you're working with is unusual it's uh, like I watched a few of the videos on YouTube trying to get my head around like how this works and the because I don't know a huge amount about how like you get optioned and then what happens in that journey. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about like this concept of fan backed film development work. Like, what is that? How is that different um, Mm -hmm. from other types of, of optioning? And like, what is the process? And like all of the questions, because I think I'll
1: ask the question about how you're involved in a second. Yeah. Answer that bit first and then I'll ask the next bit. Okay. So that's just a fun question because it actually wasn't fan backed at all. When I first signed with them, that wasn't even on the radar. It was just normal Hollywood business style. So they optioned my thing. Everything was normal. Good to go. And then the fan backed actually was a result of COVID this whole season where Hollywood was shutting down. Nobody could do anything. And we, you know, the producers started looking around and seeing other people doing similar concepts and there's actually so much more of it going on it might not be as public as you think but there's just so much more of that happening and and even bts i don't know if you know who bts is but they korean singing yeah they're like the largest pop band in the world and they even were like hey we're gonna go straight to the fans we're gonna bypass these gatekeepers because you know what forget that we want to start now we're not gonna have them tell me that i can't start and be who i am you know and so it was kind of like looking at all these guys being like, you know what? Other people are just going straight to the fans, and and so one of my producers, um, he was like, you know what? I I think I want to try this, and and everyone else was like, I don't know. Not everybody was a fan of the idea, and but they're like, what do we have to lose? Is COVID, and so they you know decided, hey, let's just do this, and it it ended up being super successful, and they like raised this huge amount of investment money so it's not like a you know a kickstarter or anything it's actually investors invest they opened it up for a certain number of the development so the the budget is quite large but they opened up a certain like just two million dollars so the budget is 60 million but they opened a window for the public to invest in the development only and they raised it very quickly like everyone was like how in the world did you do that But what they learned along the way was how powerful it was to get fans involved, because all of a sudden there was more resources. There was like a funner engagement. They had a fan base and they were like, whoa. And then they had even more control as opposed to going a traditional Hollywood route, right, where everyone is vying for control and blah, blah, blah. And they were like, this is the most enjoyable thing we've ever done in our 30 years in Hollywood. So let's keep going in this direction and see where, where it goes. And it was, it was a process because they had never done it before with any of their other movies. And we had never done it before. So eventually they did purchase the rights. They optioned the other books in my series and all these other fans now are just jumping on board. It's actually been one of the most enjoyable things for me because now I have fans that are also investors who are, who are contacting me being like, we're so excited for the movie, you know, and they're telling their friend, it's just, it's been a momentum. And then just offering resources that we couldn't even imagine. We were just like, wow, this is actually like a team. This is like building a team. And it was more powerful than we could have imagined. So it was, it's been a cool process, a learning process as well. Not everything is smooth, but it's been great. So as, a, as an investor,
0: what does that mean? Does that mean that they get a percentage of when the film goes public or like how does that work?
1: Yeah, so if you want to get into the details, definitely go check out the um uh, the the raise because it's it's kind of um it's not risk-free, but there's almost a guarantee like once the budget is raised even before the movie's back, you'll get 110% back of what you've put in. And my producers they're kind of cool. Cause they're like, if we're going to open it to the public, we want to open it up to every kind of man or woman. And so they were saying, we want to go as low as a hundred dollars because we want to let it, like, even that guy who's like, Hey, I wish I would have invested in the hunger games, but I only have a hundred bucks, you know? So they didn't want to like have it too high. And so I know a ton of people who are like, why not? That'd be amazing to invest in a movie. All invest a hundred bucks. And then there were other people who were like, Hey, I've read the books I, and invested thousands and even half million. Like it was just like people. And it's cool for me as the author, because people were like, Hey, I was conflicted, but then I read your book. And I said, well, I'm 100% in. And I was like, Oh, you know, it's just like the tears of just being so affirmed. Like, wow, they're, they're believing in my idea. And it was just, it like blessed me so much. so um, yeah, so you do get a return. Um, the movies, it's built into how much more will come once the movie starts making money. So they have it all built in. And now because the first movie was so successful, they that's already closed. There's no way to invest in the first movie. They just opened the sequels, the ability to invest in the sequels, like, uh, I don't know, a few months ago. And so there's still a chance to invest in the sequels, which... I think are even funner than the first book. So (laughs) where is
0: it in in has has it gone to filming? Is it still in production? Where is
1: the Yeah, it's still in development. So the screenplays are being written. That's on pause right now because there's actually a strike yeah. so everybody's on pause there so they're working on other sides of development you know looking at studios directors actors talent you know music like they're just doing other sides of development right now which is really really exciting and yet I can't say anything <laughs> uh, okay All right.
0: Let's say uh, an indie author listening would love to get their film, their novel option for film. Do you have any advice? I know it's a bit like shooting a needle or trying to get a needle out of a haystack, but any advice um, that you could give to listeners?
1: Okay, for an indie author. um, Are they is this scenario? Are they agented? Uh, they could be, yeah. Or that could be the first thing that they need to go and do. Yeah. So there's so many options today. I would say right now it's it's like our world has changed so dramatically that anyone agented or not could could get a film deal and if you have the right networks. And it depends on if you're translating it into a screenplay yourself, which is a whole nother art that you'd have to learn, a whole nother craft um but you definitely need to have a powerful pitch deck and if you don't know what a pitch deck is you should start there because to pitch your pitch your book to film you're going to need a pitch deck which shows the project and it shows the story and it hooks the producer visually and also you know with your your words and and your hook and then you actually need a network to pitch it to which is the hardest you people don't know how to get in contact with producers which is why they have agents agents film agents or film or literary agents if they do both um they're the ones that have those contacts and can pitch to those agencies they can pitch to those producers they can pitch to those networks um and if you don't have an agent it is harder to get those contacts but um if you're going to conferences if you're going to film conferences if you're doing you know there's a ton of even teaching online like if you're a screenwriter or if you're like a a novelist who wants to contact even if you take classes they give you the ability to pitch your story now that is and there's contests um yeah there's a lot of different ways and to to go about doing it for me now that I've done it my first was you know like i said right place right time but now we've grown really savvy and my agent is like oh hey there's a whole other network of producers that i could pitch to in this direction and then me myself i've been able to meet a ton of different producers and i actually write my own screenplays as well now that i pitch to the producers that i've met in my own networks now so it's i would say build your network and and look for those open doors look for partners in the arena and yeah, and if you're looking at adapting your own book, really practice this, the craft of screenplays and, and learn how to put a really powerful, visually pleasing pitch deck together.
0: What is the biggest lesson that you've learned about Hollywood and translating to film uh, in your journey so far? The
1: biggest lesson. Oh, let me see. Um, okay, it's exciting it's really exciting like you said everyone wants to see their story into film which I you know it's true but not every story I feel like should be a movie but people read calculated and they're like oh my gosh it's a movie it's so cinematic I could, I saw the whole thing um and so for me I felt the same way like while I was writing I was like this could be a movie and so one of the things I learned is like first of all it's really exciting to see your your book come alive like my studio is taking the time to create these amazing images. Like if you start looking at them, you're like, wow, this is like, this is so interesting. This was like birthed inside my own imagination. And now there's all these people, like an entire team of people that are taking my imagination and bringing it to life. Now that's exciting. Um, It's also terrifying in the sense that they they are like, interpreting different things and and moving things around and they have to change certain things, right? And one thing that I've learned is it takes a lot of time a lot of patience, a lot of money, a lot of people, a lot of integrity. I mean, it just is like, it is not an easy thing to put a film together. There are so many moving parts. It's literally a miracle if you can make a movie or if it comes out, because there's like tens and tens and there's probably millions of movies in the works that will never be made because you need all those moving parts. And so for me, it's, it's really celebrating one step at a time because even my lawyer, my entertainment attorney, he's like, he he's very pragmatic. He's like, Hey, listen, (laughs) um, this might never happen. (laughs) You know, he's like, it could get pulled at any moment. That's how Hollywood works. (laughs) And, and it's true. Like, you know, there's just so many other authors, incredible, more famous than me, more, you know, they're brilliant and they're they've made it all the way to production and things have been pulled. And so it is, it's learning to just celebrate each victory and, like really celebrate where you're at and just keep pushing forward as if you believe in it and, or I mean, believing it, I truly believe in it and um, doing all you can to work towards it and being patient when things are like, you know, like there's compromise involved. We're like, that's not exactly what I thought, but yeah, I can see how that would be powerful and, and moving forward. so I think that's
0: a really good lesson. Like even not for film is to, to stop and celebrate. I think we get so caught up on the end Uh, goal that we often forget to celebrate those milestones on the way and I say we really I mean I Uh, I'm terrible for not celebrating and like it, it is something that we should stop and just smell like the roses of how far we've come kind of thing let's turn to craft now Your protagonist is a math genius And there aren't many math geniuses In the world So um, I don't know Maybe you are a math genius Or you've already told me How good you are with language But uh, how did you conduct research For this book? Um, I watched a few things That you've been in Or like interviews And YouTube things And I heard you mention That you spoke to several experts Including NASA specialists Mm -hmm. Like how the fuck? Like how did you get those contacts? Like how did that happen? Like yeah talk to me are you a maths genius as well as a linguist or like
1: <laughs> um I've actually been asked that numerous times yeah, in bet. interviews just because of my books and that is so so—that's actually a high compliment because that means I did something right I actually had a mathematician fly to see me at the LA comic-con and he wanted to talk to me about math and all the easter eggs I put in I'm like what easter eggs and he's like what? Are you kidding me? Why did you put this number when it perfectly matches with that number? I'm like, well, that I didn't know about. I'm like, that's genius. (laughs) No, there's just so many amazing, like small miracles when it comes to this story that I didn't even know were there. And when that mathematician came, it blew my mind. Um, I'm not a math genius, but I did a ton of research and I really did uh, draw on my networks. Again, maybe You know, it is about building your network. I'm a, I'm a natural networker. I love people. I love engaging people. I'm talking to people all around the world. I've, I've had to do that. I've had to grow. Like I've lived in seven countries. And when you go there alone, you're like building your own network right alone. And that's like, that's an empower. That's a powerful experience when you can go somewhere alone and build a new life from nothing you have to be you have to be able to talk to people right apparently i i mean i love that and so i do have a very interesting network all over the world which has led me to these nasa experts to these ha- expert hackers top 10 hackers in the world was at, able to read simulated and give me like i was like hey i need language for this is this right and he'd be like oh no we need to work on this and this. Um, and then math, I brought it to math teachers um, and then the NASA experts as well. But getting back to your first question, am I a math genius? No, I actually researched a ton of math prodigies, a ton of mathematicians, and a ton of mathematical concepts. And in the process, I would say, it, it actually came in book two and book three. I fell in love with math and I was, by book three, I was like, I should have been a physicist. I should have been a mathematician, should have been a physicist but I'm not good at the math part, but I'm good at the concept part and the puzzle part. Cause like I said, I am a linguist and math is a language. It's, it's a language and and it's a puzzle. And it, and I was like crying during research for book two and book three. I was like rocked by all the mathematical research because math is speaking all the time to like the things unseen in our world. And it was mind blowing to the point where I was like bawling. I'm like, oh, this is the most amazing math I have ever read in the world. You know, I was like, I have to put this in my book, you know, and, and you talk about layering. Yeah. You have to layer all of that research in a really delicate manner or else you're going to be boring. You're going to, you can't put it in as like a math class because um, I might be getting ahead of myself, but actually I did meet prodigies. I did talk to mathematicians. I did draw on these ne- experts because I wanted my book to feel real. I wanted Joe Rivers' gift to be based on a mathematical reality that is possible. And when you start doing research on prodigies, the 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 hole is deep because there are prodigies in our world who do see things like my character, and they are able to calculate things like my character. And it's, it's mind-blowing. The NASA expert was... Um, a friend of a friend, basically, and they just asked me, asked for a meeting with me. And that was also mind blowing. How did you approach like the
0: interviewing people? It's funny, because I, I spoke to somebody else today, and I asked them a similar question about interviewing. But like, I always feel like trying to elicit the right information, sometimes we don't even know what we don't know. And therefore, we don't know what to ask. But like, how do you approach going to interview somebody do you like have preset questions do you know what you want to ask are you asking more about feelings or like you know because sometimes when people write sort of uh, narrative non-fiction for example they're trying to get to like the gritty heart of like an emotion or and I know obviously you're like interviewing for maths and concepts and stuff but like as a like to the other authors listening like what advice would you give to them in terms of trying to get deeper with their research when they're on that one-on-one interviewing, um, people.
1: Okay. So my research, my research was very specific because I had already created concepts and language all, all, uh, weaved into plot and character. So what I needed was specific. Um, I needed very specific language and I needed, um, to make sure that this was a, this could be real. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where I was like, this tech, could this tech be real? Or how do I make it based on something real? And so I actually did a ton of research on every single tech I designed. And to be honest, like a lot of the tech out there is crazy, right? It's already real. So when I thought I had come up with something that was like genius and scary, I would Google it. I'm like, "Oh, Oh no, it exists you know like our world is you know and then I talked to the hacker this is so funny because I talked to the hacker and he's like half the things that you invented are real and he's like even the word veil like I have a a tech called veil like v-e-i-l he was like there's actually an old tech called veil (laughs) I was like no he's like yes he's like this is just wild and so I'm, I'm interviewing these guys with my text. So I have my idea, I have my book and I'm, I'm actually interviewing them with, does this sound real? Do I sound legit? That, that was my research specifically. And so I even interviewed, um, you know, Tunisians and Arabs and Finnish people, like every single, I wasn't just interviewing Um, the tech experts but I was also interviewing cultural experts even though I lived in those countries I was still making sure that everything that I was saying was real and legit and that's important too because if you're going to write international stuff even though I've lived there I speak those languages I was still like how is this perceived because I want to be honoring to every culture that I go in every culture I've ever lived in has has like welcomed me and loved me in like such a hardcore way I want to honor them back by giving like the best of what i have lived in their countries and and their cultures and so i was like interviewing them like okay is this accurate to this market or this street and this feeling and you know getting the cuz i want it to be real as real as fiction can be right
0: and <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit more about that it's a great segue because when <sighs> most authors when we do research we go down the rabbit hole oh, and, for sure. right like it's that is just like the prerogative of an author is to is to compile masses of research but actually a book is only 300 pages or 500 pages Mm -hmm. And there's only so much of our research we can put into a story before it becomes nonfiction and not fiction. And we still need that escapism element to it. So how did you go from a shit ton of research Mm -hmm. to something that is actually, you
1: know, an escapist, Mm -hmm. you know, fictional reality? That's such a good writer question. And that's really powerful for every writer to know, because basically you're only putting in 30% of your research. You're like researching this massive amount, but you will not put it. You'll put very little in, but what you put in is really powerful and specific. And it actually has those details that all that research is necessary. So some days I only do research. I'm just reading all day long. I'm just like taking notes and I'm I'm actually becoming an expert on that one topic so that when I speak about it, it's perfectly in sync with w- what the concept is. And so you do have to layer that research. And again, as writers, if we're not connecting our research to the character it's going to, it's going to fall flat. We're not going to have relatability and that internal conflict. You know what I'm saying? Like everything that we put in our book, whether it's the research or the back, you know, backstory or whatever, it has to be connected to plot and character because we're not, it's not, no one's going to care. Like I connect everything that I do into some kind of emotional reaction, It a, a mystery part that we need. So her tech is we know the tech is going to play into later. So I'm describing tech and I'm describing our gift, but everything that I said has a purpose and it plays in. And there was this one, he's a screenwriter, um, story writer, screenwriter. He was like, he's like, your payoffs are huge because every little thing is paid off. And that's what makes powerful writing. You're not just putting research in to put research this research has a purpose for this part of the plot and this purpose of her internal conflict, this purpose of her, it's reflecting part of her character. So you gotta be, you gotta be tricky because not only are you doing research, but you also have to connect it to something because that's how we experience a character. We're relating to them in their deeper desires, wants, goals, conflicts, internal, external. I make sure everything that I put in is connected to one of those things. And that that's key. So I layer this is the other side of your question critique partners okay when I was writing activated ton of amazing research I didn't want to put just 30 percent of that in I wanted to put 50 and my critique partners were like yeah we know you think this is fascinating but boring you gotta cut (laughs) (laughs) they're like this is too much science going on and so again your critique partners are also such a huge asset because they're they're they love you the story, they love your characters, but they can also, you know, cut it off to where you're excited about your research, but they know the reader's not. Mm-hmm. And that is so good. Get critique partners who a love your story, are invested in your characters, and then can also just pull you out when your head's too far in, you know? And I definitely I had to cut pages of research because my CPs were like, no like keep this part, but scratch the rest. I'm like, but but look at all that amazing. They're like, yeah, and people can read about that if they're interested, they could go Google that. But for story, you need to just stick here. Let's
0: talk about the fact that your character is a math prodigy and like a, a genius. Like I'm clever, but I'm not a genius. <laughs> <laughs> so like, what advice do you have for writers who would like to write characters who might be different from them and might be super highly clever. And, you know, maybe they're a clever writer, but they're not a genius level clever. Um, you know, how do you do this and make it look, um, what's the word, like make it look genuine without just adding in a load of, you know, long words and it not actually coming across authentic?
1: Yeah, so I'm not a genius either. Like I said, it's it's research and creativity, and I I really did um I did not know what I was getting into when I thought, yeah, my protagonist should be a math prodigy. I was I didn't realize looking back, <laughs> I I like cursed myself because it was like it gave me three years of headaches, right? Um, and then every other book, I'm like, why, why? Because you can't have a simple plot or a simple character if you're writing geniuses. And so literally I have like banged my head against the desk being like, why did I choose to write prodigies? Because I have, uh, they're smarter than me. They're literally smarter than me. I can't, I can't do this. You know, I've had moments where I'm like, I can't write them. And so it goes back to um, doing this research. It's not about long words. It's about the way they think from, from my characters, it's about the way they think and how they come up with things. And so that, you know, as a writer comes through revision, you have a small idea. And as you write, you go back and you refine, how can I make her look smarter? Oh, by doing this little thing, but oh, here's another part where I can make that mathematical thing smarter. So she doesn't have any long words, but the way she thinks is very sharp and clear. And we see... We see the world through her mathematical lens, right? We don't need math to read the book, but what we're seeing is a brand new world. And so what I'm doing is I'm sharpening these things. And it's and it, what it does is it it gives her an edge. And so with every prodigy that I created, I made sure to give them a gift that we could relate to. And that was interesting or funny, but also gave them some kind of edge. And again, I connected all of their gifts to plot and character. So it for me, I would say it took months and months and months of revision to get those characters
0: <laughs> right. Do you, do you have an example of what you mean by she thinks differently? So like what, like how... Yeah, I don't know. Do you have, like, an example of what that looks like in the story? Like, how is it that she thinks that is different to somebody who isn't necessarily a genius?
1: Yeah, so my character, she she is this prodigy that has a mathematical gift where she literally sees um, through a mathematical lens where everything is calculating around her. She can see, like, she's – the time is calculating – The graphs around are calculating. There's equations predicting things all around. So if you read about differential equations, which is math, that's a whole concept that I was reading about. It literally can predict all of these things around her. So she's seeing things that could potentially happen all around that are happening, but she's calculating them before they even happen, right? So she knows, for example, if a boy's going to like touch her hand or like try to hold her hand before he holds her hand. She also knows if he won't do it. So there's that element of like, she's not surprised. And so she, you know, she's like, well, I know this boy doesn't like me because he's like, mathematically, I can see his body. She can read body language, she can read The Not only can she calculate how many things are in a room, body weight, all these things. She's She has all the mathematical equations around her for every information that she needs. But right now at the beginning, they're not really connected. Like the mind and the heart are not connected. She doesn't actually know how to use her gift until much later, until she's taken, betrayed, and stuck in this place called the Pratt, where she meets Red, who is this mentor type person um, who then teaches her how to wield that gift and and use it to her advantage to really become who she's designed to be because right now she doesn't know why she has this gift she knows she can make an incredible amount of money with it and that she's really gifted in you know but right now she sees things that other people can't see so in a way she's super valuable she can predict things that other people can't predict.
0: That is awesome yeah I love that and it is like you say very visual I can totally it's almost like um Goodwill Hunting I kind of see the you know the guy who does all the math equations I love it oh okay. it's been
1: compared to Goodwill Hunting meets Jason Bourne meets like it's interesting because now two Matt Damon movies have been comparisons to mine Goodwill Hunting um yeah Jason Bourne um what is that Hidden Figures Mission Impossible it's like Hunger Games Divergent like they're all like those are all the you know, kind of books thrown away like Hunger Games meets goodwill hunting. I'm like, oh, interesting. That's cool. Like no competition fighting, by the way. No, it's not like I, Hunger Games in, in story, but I love feels. when people use like film
0: comparisons because you know like exactly what you're gonna get. Uh, like you know, I do that all the time. I everything I read I compare to I'm like, oh it's this means this or you know yes. that means that like I always it's just how I talk. Um okay. So your book, as you've said, is set in multiple locations that you've actually lived in as well. So can you give some like maybe writing tips on how to create rich settings without letting it overpower the story because obviously setting in itself can be used as a character but it's not the character it's not the protagonist well (laughs) unless somebody's doing something super clever but the most of the time it's just you know it's setting and visuals so yeah any craft tips for creating rich settings
1: so that is an interesting question for me just because i have lived 20 years of my life in other countries So I have a lot of personally rich experiences eating in Muslim tents and Muslim uh, villages that have no running water or Tibetan houses, you know, in the middle of nowhere, miles from miles from town and getting a stomach bug and throwing up for 15 hours where there's no bathroom in the house. And you're like, Uh, I tried I trekked up Mount Everest space camp
0: and uh, yeah, like I I can attest to the fact that (laughs) getting that belly is uh, not fun when there's no running water and no real toilets and just a hole in the floor.
1: (laughs) Oh, you know it. And when you're at your Tibetan friend's house and like, they're all like, and and so that specific event was like, I had gone to my Tibetan friend's village. It's like, and they decided no one had died that year. And so they decided by camping on the grasslands, which is great. So everybody decided to camp on the grasslands, which was literally like, you could see it from their houses. It was just like you climbed up the hill and you camped on the grasslands. That's fun. And um, so I was the only foreigner in that area for miles. And so everybody wanted to invite me into their tents for butter tea. I don't know if you've ever had Tibetan butter tea. No, you must go back. <laughs> it is an experience you will never forget. Um, I'm totally used to it now, but um, so anyway, I, I got a bug from some of the butter tea and that was uh that was an experience. Eventually the next day I had to ride on the back of a motorcycle, my brother, my friend's brother's motorcycle <laughs> for like six miles into another town uh, or no 30 minutes. I don't even know. It was 30 minutes into another town where there was a German doctor that could see me. Um, and he gave me some stuff to help my stomach and, yeah. It was, so anyway, my point is lots of crazy adventures all over the world. I have experience, but that doesn't mean I don't do research still. Um, describing a place can be really powerful. And I love drawing my care. I love drawing my readers into a, a setting that they're going to feel and they're going to experience. And looking at some of the reviews or you know messages that readers send me, they're like, there's no point in buying a plane ticket. You can just read Nova's books. Like you're there, you're literally there and I'm experiencing this place. And it's fun having readers saying, I want to go to every place that you (laughs) describe," And that's like, you know, it's a win. Um, But I, like I said, I draw on, I draw my own experiences because I want to draw people into that. And so again, you can't go overboard with your setting, but what you wanted to do, you want to do is create a stage or you wanna set the stage for a beautiful backdrop. It's very visual, writing is visual too. It's just like a screenplay. You have to create this visual, but it has to be connected to plot. For me, it has to be connected to character, has to be connected to plot. And in each of my books, it's even connected to her math gift. So she's using using the visuals around her um, in every setting to, to show me something that we need for the story. So I actually love using setting to create something, even a, a deeper experience actually. And so my my suggestion to those who can't travel around the world is read travel blogs and, and listen to those who have gone to those places, look at their pictures, imagine, I mean, for for writing, you guys know this, It's imagination. Close your eyes and imagine you in those places. Go and walk around. Listen to the local music. That's huge. If you can listen to the local music, if you can go to a restaurant and eat that local food and taste it, smell it yourself. Like, I'm all about experience, right? I've lived... Twenty years of just doing those experiences Go and get experience. Get out of the house. Go eat. Go eat some kind of Azerbaijani meal. You know. <laughs> go meet them. There's like if you look around, there's so much more around you than you can possibly imagine, and it will enrich your life. And you can add that into your your books.
0: Well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner
1: rebel. Okay. (laughs) Uh, so I had to think about one I wanted to share online. (laughs) Um, no, so many times and I, I've grown as a person. No, I, I, I have a natural, um, I, I wouldn't say it's a rebel side, but I would say it's a part of who I am to take risks and I think that's all about, it's everybody has that, right? It's the part of who they are that's growing and you need to risk to become who you are. And um, when I was doing university research, this is the one that came to mind when you asked that question earlier. And I was like, huh, oh, which one is it? Um, I I hadn't thought of this in years, but I was like, what's a, what's a different kind of risk that I took? And looking back, I can't even believe I did this. I was living in Denmark at the time doing my senior research for the University of Washington. And I I studied immigration. I did foreign policy, basically international relations and languages. But I was doing my senior research on immigration and integration, refugee policy in Europe. And so I was in living in Denmark at the time, doing research on the in immigrants of Denmark. And <laughs> I went to this um, this uh, very government run refugee place and it was like zero visitors allowed no one was allowed in it was super strict you had to have clearance to get in and I was so disappointed I was like oh my gosh like I really wanted an interview here I really wanted to find out if I could do research here well as I was like realizing there's like no way in these like guys come in and they open the door and I just bolt. And sneak in, sneak in after them. And they don't notice me, but I'm like, I am literally the one sneaking through this like secure compound run by the government. All. And so I'm like sneaking around the room and then somebody catches me. They're like, who are you? I'm like, oh, I am. I'm Nova. Nova. And I'm here about research. They're like, how did you get in the building? How, like, this is not okay. And you're in, you're in big trouble. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. And so they take me into this room and I'm thinking, oh my word. I would like, hey, the worst thing you could do is get kicked out. I thought, I hoped, I am in another country. And so I am like put in this room. And this is, I want to just say that I have been taken in by police around the world for being in wrong areas. (laughs) I've been woken up in the middle of the night. A banged on my door in the middle of the night in some crazy village by police who want my passport. I'm like waking up. I'm like, am I arrested? (laughs) So, but anyway, going back to Denmark. So I get into the office of this president and he's like, what are you doing? And why did you break into our office? I'm like, I just wanted research for this topic. And I start explaining what I'm doing. And he's like, we just started a conversation. He's like, okay, well, yeah. How about I offer you an internship? And I was like, oh, (laughs) fine. And oh my gosh. You know, it didn't last long, but it was just what I needed. And they actually had to cut my intern short because they realized I would, I did not have authorization to be there at all. And so they're <laughs> like, it, it was just like enough to get what I needed for my senior research. And then I was like, totally cut off. But I think back to myself, I'm like, how, why did you do that? Like, just, you know, it's that weird part of my personality where I'm like, they say no, but there's a yes somewhere. I love looking back at that. And cause I have a lot of that. And uh, half of my research done for my senior research, even in Iceland, um, was because I took a risk and went past the line to ask somebody or to seek them out. And one time I went to this, um, mm. ambassador, And he was also very disturbed that I came to approach him. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, I have ruined my chances. And then the next thing I know is he's asking me out for lunch to the fanciest place in in Reykjavik and giving me all the information that I needed. It was amazing. I fucking love that. It's amazing. So that inner rebel can actually work for you if you're pursuing a dream. And so that's the part that I really like about it.
0: Well, I think the heart of Rebellion is joy-seeking anyway, so I completely get that. Yes. Thank you so much for your time today. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your books and anything else that you'd like to add?
1: You can find my books um, anywhere online, I think. Uh, You can find them on Amazon, obviously. You can order them through Bookshop, online, um, through my website, um they're on audible yep and i'm mostly on instagram i do have tiktok i am never on there twitter i'm never on there i do have a facebook account that i follow that i respond to and yeah you can follow me on instagram or my newsletter i send out more private things on my newsletter so if you want to follow me and get special deals and first news definitely sign up for that and yeah be sure to follow my studio as well they have so many fun updates
0: amazing well thank you so much for your time today and of course a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons if you would like to get early access to all of the episodes as well as loads of bonus content then you can from as little as two dollars a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black I'm Sasha Black you were listening to Nova McBee and this was the Rebel Author Podcast Next week, I'm talking to Michael Evans all about the creator economy for authors. And we dive into Ream, the platform that he created with Amelia Rose, uh, which is a subscription platform for authors. And he also gives lots of really great recommendations uh, for community building uh, books and resources as well. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.